If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This week, Queen Elizabeth II has been celebrating her Platinum Jubilee, the first monarch in Britain's history to reach this historic milestone. But how has the nation changed since she was born in 1926? Rhiannon Davis spoke to the historian and broadcaster Dominic Sandbrook about some of the biggest shifts in Britain during the Queen's extraordinary life. This conversation was recorded in partnership with the Historical Association's Great Debate, which this year asked students to reflect on the biggest change to affect their local areas during the Queen's reign. So Dominic, before we delve into the changes that have affected Britain, what was the country like in the year of her birth, 1926, from a political and cultural standpoint? So 1926, when the Queen was born, um, Britain is only really just out of the First World War, the scars of the First World War everywhere on the streets, ex-soldiers with missing limbs, you've got the sort of psychological scars of war are very palpable. So you've also got... uh, Britain is there's very high unemployment. Britain feels like quite an um, embattled country in many ways. Uh, there's been a war in Ireland, the Irish War of Independence. Uh, 1926 is the year of the general strike, when the you know, big sort of conflict between the trade unions and the uh, government of Stanley Baldwin, the Conservative government. So Britain is quite a sort of conflicted country in 1926. I mean, it's obviously a completely different country socially and kind of visually, you know. So if you went back to 1926 in a time machine, it would smell different. It would smell of coal, actually. And, you know, there'd be this smog hanging in the air because everybody heats their houses by coal, smoke. And of course, hundreds of thousands of people working in factories or down mines, women not going to work, but working as housewives. So the world into which the Queen was born was in many ways so different from ours as to seem like something from ancient history. And thinking beyond Britain, what's the empire like in the 20s? The empire is very, very great. Uh, it's, it's huge. So um, the empire is pretty much at its peak territorially. Um, but there's a funny sort of ambiguity about it because Britain's empire has probably never been bigger. Well, it has never been bigger um, than, after, than at the end of the First World War because it had accumulated protectorates and so-called mandates. And yes, at the same time, the empire's quite insecure. So you've got the beginnings of, um, you know, you've got the sort of nationalist movement in India, for example. So the independence movement, Gandhi and so on, all getting going. And of course, in Ireland, you've already seen part of the, the United Kingdom itself kind of break away. So there's a sense, I think, that the empire is simultaneously big, uh, very important to politicians' sense of Britain's place in the world, but also fragile. But there's, you know, there are threats to the empire, and you see this in sort of fiction and so on. There's, it's full of these sort of paranoid conspiracy theories about people plotting to undermine the British Empire. But obviously for the young Elizabeth, you know, her 
her um, grandfather, George V, he's not just the king, he's the king emperor because he's emperor of India. So she grows up in a world where sort of imperial iconography and the sort of expectations of empire are everywhere. And obviously she's going to end up being sort of immersed in these and that then later evolves into the Commonwealth. And you mentioned in one of your earlier answers that in 1926, in the 20s, women didn't go to work. But there is this big social, cultural shift happening around women, with women cutting their hair, smoking, drinking. Yeah. Women had never previously cut their hair. <laughs> no, obviously, walking around <laughs> with hair, touching the floor. But how how are women changing in this period? So this is obviously the moment of the flappers. Um, as they're called in the 1920s. So these are women who are uh, young women, affluent. Previously, before the First World War, their antecedents have been women who went bicycling, which was very scandalous by the standards of the time. Now you've got you've got women, as you say, smoking, um, wearing kind of flapper dresses, cocktail dresses, living in a sort of a bit racily compared with their predecessors. So yes, there's a, definitely a sense that sort of masculinity and femininity are kind of in flux. And women, of course, now have the vote. So from 1929, the so-called flapper election, when um, the Queen turns three that year, um, that's the first election in which young women can vote. So women in their 20s. And, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of newspaper commentary and stuff about the morals of young women. And, you know, young women have more money than before. And they are, I mean, they're not, most aren't working, or at least they don't work after they get married. But there are more working than before. And of course, a lot of women had worked in the First World War. So there's a definite sense of kind of transition. And from the highs of the Roaring Twenties, we come to the lows of the Thirties and the Great Depression. Can you tell us how that affects England? I can indeed. And you know the funny thing, actually, this is a brilliant example of how people view British history through the distorting prism of America. Because first of all, the Twenties didn't roar in Britain. There's no Roaring Twenties in Britain. In In Britain... Um, there's actually not much of a transition between the 20s and 30s because you had quite high unemployment and lots of industrial unrest in Britain in the 20s. But then also, uh, conversely, the Depression wasn't that bad in Britain. It wasn't as bad in Britain as it was almost anywhere else. So in Britain, what you see is there is a Depression, and I think you can date it pretty much from 1931 onwards. So it doesn't start in Britain with the Wall Street crash at all. That's complete nonsense. Um, but so the peak of it is probably 1931 to 1935. It's a big economic downturn and it particularly hits the north. So it's very regionally specific. So you've got this weird thing about 30s Britain where there are two sort of different versions of the story happening at the same time. So on the one hand, you have the plight of the um, unemployed, uh, the people who march from Jarrow in the northeast to London to protest against their... Um, the fact that they have no, they have no work. There are entire towns that have been completely devastated by unemployment, kind of shipbuilding towns or steel towns, and so on. And then in the Midlands and the South, these are the years of kind of Agatha Christie novels, and you know, sort of suburban contentment. And this is sort of Stanley Baldwin's Britain. So um, people who actually, if they're in work, are doing pretty well. And in towns in the Midlands and the South, there's a relative sense of contentment. So. Britain is quite wobbly, I suppose you would say, in the first half of the 30s. And then in the second half, really, it starts to sort of pull out of that. The Depression is over. Britain has gone into recovery more quickly than any of its um, West, sort of Western industrial competitors. Um, and then, obviously, the focus turns to the sort of looming menace of World War. Mm. And coming on to the looming menace of World War, how does the Second World War affect Britain? Because obviously that must have a much greater impact than the 30s and the 20s with the Depression and 
Yeah, I mean, the Second World War is, is seismic for Britain. I mean, the Second World War is by far the defining moment, I suppose, of the, of the Queen's lifetime. Um, defining, I suppose, in the way that Britain sees itself. So, you know, famously, I can't believe there are many people listening to this who, who don't know vaguely the outlines of the story. Britain and France declare war on Nazi Germany in 1939 to try and stand up for Poland. Um, for the first sort of six months or so, longer than six months, really, of the war, nothing much seems to happen. Then France and, and Western Europe collapses very quickly and Britain is left, in the public imagination at least, alone. Obviously, it still has its empire. Um, and it also starts to have aid, help from the United States. But in the public imagination, this is Britain's hour. This is the moment when Britain stands alone in Europe against the sort of the Nazi menace and stuff. And this becomes tremendously important, I think, throughout the rest of the Queen's lifetime and in her reign, kind of politically, in terms of Britain's self-image. So generations of people have this self-image that we are the, the one country, as Margaret Thatcher put it, we are the one country that stood when everyone else surrendered. Um, it, it obviously has an impact sort of socially, physically at the time as well. So British cities are bombed, you know, Coventry, London, most of the ports and so on, most of the industrial cities. Um, or every family knows somebody or has sent somebody, who, you know, who's gone abroad to fight, whether it be in Singapore or in Burma or in, um, uh, in Western Europe or in the, the desert of North Africa. So the war leaves this, in, this deep imprint. And of course, the Queen herself is involved in it because... Her father says, you know, we will never leave Buckingham Palace. We'll stay there even during the Blitz when it's being bombed. And she and her sister, Margaret, they sort of become patriotic icons, really, in the in the Second World War. This is they're doing their bit to, you know, driving Land Rovers or whatever, or sort of doling things out to kids at photo ops and stuff. Because there's, there's only four of them. The royal family seems very small at that point, I think, in the 1940s, at least in the public imagination. And I think that family becomes this kind of surrogate for Britain itself. They're seen as kind of a microcosm of the, of the nation. And that sense of sort of duty and service, you know, which the Queen has always kind of incarnated, you know, almost to the point of cliche. Um, I think she gets a lot of that from the kind of rhetoric of wartime. I mean, that's when she comes of age, really. So that at her, in her formative years, the airwaves, as it were, are full of all this stuff about, you know, doing your bit for the country and all this. And I think she absolutely absorbs this and then basically lives it for the rest of her life. Mm, it is one of the ironies, isn't it, when you're thinking about how Britain's changed in her lifetime. The one thing that seems to not have changed is the Queen herself. She's been very reliable and consistent. Yes, and that's been the trick, hasn't it? I mean, actually, it's a really, really interesting conjuring trick. And the Queen is... I think, massively underrated as a political operator. Because on the one hand, she appears not to have changed at all and to be completely consistent. But actually, she has changed. And a very good example of that, you know, academics have, have spent you know, many happy hours listening to the Queen's Christmas broadcasts back to back. Who would do that for fun? Anyway, they have. And they've tracked the ways that her accent has changed, become more demotic, become you know less... Uh, it's hard to believe, but it's become sort of less niche and sort of strangulated um, over the years. So the Queen has changed, but very subtly, and while always presenting herself as a kind of bulwark of stability. And of course, in, in turbulent political times, that makes her appeal all the greater. And thinking now about post-war Britain, so Britain in the 50s, leisure, affluence and consumerism are sweeping across the nation. How does this affect ordinary Britons? What kind of hobbies are they taking up? What clothes are they wearing? What new gadgets do they have in their homes? 
So the first half of the 50s is pretty grey, and then in the second half of the 50s, as you say, absolutely rightly, everything explodes, and there's huge economic growth. For people in work, they're, they're taking home more wages. Um, well, I say for people in work, I mean, everybody's in work, basically. They're taking home more wages than ever, and you can walk out of a job on Friday and walk into a, a new one on Monday. Um, so it seems like these are kind of boom times. And uh, people are wearing, they have more clothes, they have more colourful clothes because of cheaper dyeing techniques and so on. Um, they're buying more books, they're buying records, obviously, rock and roll. So you have the creation of a youth culture because there's a youth market, because there are young people with money in their pockets, either pocket money or they've got kind of weekend jobs, or they've left school early and they've they've just walked straight into a job. So you have fashion for them, you have music, obviously um, designed to separate them from their money. People buying cars, people even buying two cars, two-car households. You have um, people... Not many in the 50s, but the very first glimmerings of a kind of um, uh, a foreign holiday market. Um, the classic examples, are the, uh, by the way, of, of, of this affluence are two gadgets that really do transform life. One is the television. Um, so the real rush in ownership in the second half of the 1950s. And the other is the washing machine. Um, probably the most underrated sort of historical innovation of the 20th century, because what the washing machine does is it liberates housewives from the the the, the hours of drudgery of washing and then drying clothes. And once you don't need to do that, then obviously you can start looking for other ways to spend your time, and one of them is to go and, to go and work. So um, there's a real sense in the 1950s, I think, that... I mean, it's weird that people look back now and they think of the 50s as terribly staid and dull and the 60s is when it all happens. But actually, all the foundations for that are laid in the 1950s. Mm, and this is something I wanted to ask you. Did the 60s really swing? So typical historians answer yes and no. They do swing for quite a small minority of people. So if you're that, that you know, tenth of the, of the country who go to, goes to university, less than tenth in, in lots of areas, actually... Um, and you're affluent, you are kind of outward looking, you live in London particularly, then yes, it does swing. It does seem like a whirl of parties, especially if you're aged between kind of 18 and 25. If you live in Barnsley and you, you're 38 and you've got kids and stuff, do the 60s swing? They don't swing. They're just an extension of the 50s in many ways. They're, you're, you're, you know, you're better off than ever before. You are kind of broadening your horizons and stuff. Um, going on more day trips, going on more holidays, eating out more, you know, redecorating your house, maybe buying a new house, all those kinds of things. Are you going to orgies and hanging around with Paul McCartney? Pretty unlikely. And in the 50s and 60s, hundreds of thousands of immigrants come to Britain. How does this change the nation? Well, it's an interesting one about immigration, actually, because the sort of trend now is to say, well, oh, there have always been lots of black people in Britain, so this wasn't such a, a big change. I don't think that's right, actually. I think it was a very big change. Um, and you can tell that from the, the accounts of immigrants themselves when they come, they describe the reaction. So the hostility sometimes, but also people are very curious. It may shock some listeners, but it was intensely unpopular, probably the single most unpopular development of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but Britain badly needed labour. There's also a sort of push factor from the colonies. People want to uh, move to maybe sometimes to escape sort of straightened economic conditions. They believe they, be they believe a lot of the rhetoric about imperial brotherhood. They want to make better lives for themselves and what they've been told for years is the mother country and so on. So yes, you have hundreds of thousands of people moving to Britain from basically two parts of the world. One, the Caribbean, 
the islands of the Caribbean and the other, um, India and Pakistan. Um, and they tend to settle in specific areas that need jobs, that need, that have, you know, that need labour. So, for example, the mill towns of West Yorkshire or in London or in the West Midlands, they work in, uh, immigrants work in the foundries and so on, or they work driving buses and all these kinds of things, or for the NHS. Um, the tragedy is that actually some of those areas that attract high immigration in the 1950s are then going to decline massively 10 or 20 years later. So for some immigrant communities, um, the ladder that they might reasonably expect will be there in 10 or 20 years' time for their children ends up disappearing. Um, and in terms of the sort of reaction, uh, it's it's a really mixed bag, actually. So a lot of people will, um, will wonder whether there was a lot of racism, and there definitely was. And there were colour bars, for example, very sort of revealing everyday concrete symbol of the prejudice that people faced. But that wasn't necessarily... Um, the case across the whole sort of spectrum of society. So it's quite a variegated picture. But obviously by the end of the 1960s, so that's after, so it ends really in the early 60s, the sort of the great wave of immigration. The government basically passed an act to, to stop the, the influx. Um, but by the late 60s, it's already changing the sort of look of Britain. So even just petty things, I know people may think this sounds silly, but for example, you know, Indian restaurants, Chinese restaurants, and so on. The great wave of these that said so that basically by the 70s, there's an Indian restaurant in sort of every market town in the country. When that's a very visible and palpable sign of change, something that just simply wasn't there in the early 1950s. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But I think it's an incredibly powerful symbol of change and of the changing horizons and expectations of women that you can have a woman prime minister in a way that just a few decades before would have been utterly unimaginable. And coming on now to the 70s, when I think of the 70s, I think of strikes and the winter of discontent. How true is that? Is it the economic downturn that really dominates the decade? What would you say the biggest changes are? I spent far too long um, thinking and writing about the 1970s to be able to give you a sort of very a five-word answer for this, unfortunately. So the strikes, the winter of discontent, they definitely happen. Um, the 1970s in many ways are a very miserable time for Britain. Emigration is at a kind of all-time high, certainly a sort of post-war all-time high. Um, there are IRA bombs going off in pubs. Uh, there's a sense of kind of government impotence and helplessness. Um, as you say, there are periods of intense industrial unrest, inflation um, heading towards 30% in 1975. Then in 1976, Britain has to seek a then record bailout from the International Monetary Fund. So yes, there's a very bleak side to the 70s. And I think the public narrative and the public narrative that people told about their own country, they sort of said, well, the country is absolutely going to the dogs. Um, and that was pretty widespread. And yet the, the paradox is that for a lot of people, actually, life had never been better. So there's another side of the 70s, which is kind of the good life and sitcoms and space hoppers. The 70s that I grew up, that I was born in through, basically. And especially younger people, I think, if again, if they go to university, they often remember the 70s quite fondly. Um, and they'll say, well, we went on our first foreign holiday in the 1970s, for example. It's a kind of a, a strangely conflicted picture, because on the one hand, it's a time of great anxiety, and great sort of a great sense of national decline. And on the other hand, there's a great sense of ambition. 
and a sense of aspiration. Of course, the person who incarnates those two things is Margaret Thatcher because she kind of ticks both those boxes. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about Margaret Thatcher. How does her premiership change the country? Because I think most of our listeners will be definitely expecting Margaret Thatcher to come up in the biggest changes that have wrecked Britain in the last few decades. The one thing that people always underestimate is the fact that she's the first woman prime minister. I mean, people mention it and throw it away as though it's just a kind of answer to a quiz question. But I think it's an incredibly powerful symbol of change and of the changing horizons and expectations of women that you can have a woman prime minister in a way that just a few decades before would have been utterly unimaginable. Um, so I think that's the single biggest thing. I mean, we know when she goes for her meetings with the Queen, the two most powerful people in the country, both women. And I think the symbolism of that um, shouldn't be underplayed. But obviously Mrs Thatcher um, is the most, by far the most divisive um, Prime Minister of the Queen's lifetime, the Queen's reign. Um, she pushes through changes that, you know, historians argue very bitterly about these things. My, my take would be that probably that she, by and large, she hugely accelerates changes that probably were already underway. For example, the, the decline of manufacturing, the death of heavy industry, the decline of the coal industry, north-south divide, all those kinds of things. She doesn't start any of them, but she speeds them up and kind of embraces them. And I suppose one way I would describe her impact on Britain is that since the end of the Second World War, successive governments had, had in many ways done their best to try and insulate Britain from the costs of change. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher is really the first prime minister, I would say, since 1945, who really embraces change. So Britain at the end of the 1980s is a much more individualistic country. Um, but at the same time, it's more dynamic and it's more colourful. Um, so it's a, it becomes a country of very overt winners and losers. And over the Queen's lifetime, how does deindustrialization change the country? Well, the Queen, as we were saying when we were talking about the 1920s, the Queen was born into an industrial leviathan into a country where, you know, you merely had to walk the streets and you would see the evidence of the kind of industrial revolution and the Victorian. By the 1980s or so, that is really breaking up. And actually, even now, Britain is littered with the some of the debris from that transformation. It doesn't start in the 80s. It, I would say it probably starts in the mid-50s. I think the peak of industrial employment in Britain is about 1955. Um, and what it means, though, is that... I, I mean, we could spend hours talking about the, the, the legacy of deindustrialization. On the one hand, you could argue that it kind of liberates generations of people from feeling that they have to follow their forebears into the factory or, or down the mine. There are other futures available for them. But obviously, the, the great counter sort of point to that is that there are entire communities that have been based around a factory or a series of factories or a particular coal mine. And once that rationale, that economic rationale has been taken away, they feel like abandoned and declining communities. And actually, one of the stories of British politics since the 1980s has been the attempts of successive governments to try and deal with the kind of detritus of, of deindustrialization. What do you do with those communities that have been left behind, you know, where you've got huge rates of unemployment and child poverty and so on? So, so yes, it has... Um, a massive impact on the way that Britain sees itself and the way that ordinary Britons live their lives. Mm. And coming on now to the 90s, you've got the rise now of new Labour under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. What impact does this have on the country? How does it change politically? Well, the Tories have been in power from 1979 to 1997, this extraordinary 18-year um, period in office. 
And um, the Labour Party won a landslide in 97 under Blair and Brown. And this was seen as this sort of new dawn. Certainly that was how it was perceived at the time, particularly by younger people, as this kind of new dawn and an era of great modernisation. And I think it's certainly true that for the, certainly the first half of New Labour's time in office, which goes up to 2010, there was a strong sense that Britain was becoming a much more modern, self-confident country. In many ways, the battles, they were, they were lucky in some ways, New Labour, because the battles had kind of been fought for them by Mrs Thatcher in the 1980s. They didn't have these big sort of, they didn't have to confront these big issues anymore. They basically kept a lot of her legacy in, in place, actually, which annoyed some of their own activists. Um, but by and large, that period, certainly the first part of that period, it seems like quite a, this sounds harsh, but quite an age of relative complacency. Um, high unemployment has gone. The economy is booming. Britain feels much more outward-looking. Um, big waves of immigrants coming from the EU, for example. Boom of the sort of the internet. Britain feels more connected, optimistic, less inward-looking, less introverted, less conflicted, and so on. Um, and actually, there's a brief moment when the new Labour... Um, sort of administration seems more in tune with public opinion than the monarchy does most famously when Diana dies in 1997. Um, and the Queen at that point feels like a bit of a kind of relic. She's kind of slightly been left behind, I would say. And you mentioned the EU. How did the Brexit vote change the country and how the country thinks about itself? So to sort of try and put a historian's hat on and to talk about the Brexit vote is very difficult. But I would say that probably what it did was it um, accentuated disagreements that already existed. It meant that people thought of themselves as remainers and leavers, maybe in a way they hadn't done before, but their kind of un underlying instincts and impulses had probably always been there. So a leaver had always thought X, Y, and Z, and a remainer probably always thought A, B, and C. What it definitely did was, I suppose for the first time really since, I guess, the Second World War, it there was a real sense of uncertainty about Britain's destiny, about what kind of country Britain was and, and where it would sit in the world. You know, was it going to be part of a, of a continental group dedicated to the principle of ever closer union? Um, or was it going to sort of, sort of forge off on its own? Um, I'm trying to sort of describe these things like, in a, in a, as, of course, it's impossible to talk about these things completely neutrally because... You know, every, every listener will probably have very impassioned opinions. The Queen herself, I mean, the Sun claims that the Queen backed Brexit. Um, I don't know on what evidence. Um, but they, obviously, in, in some ways, Brexit was probably quite good for the Queen and for the monarchy because, because they're in a very, very hyper-politicised age, and basically everybody claimed to have all this great knowledge about a question they hadn't thought about before 2016, and was incredibly impassioned, and had this belief that they, they were the forces of light and their opponents were the forces of darkness. The Queen, having no opinion about anything at all, seemed like this beacon of sense and, and non-involvement in this sort of massive bear pit. Um, and I think in many ways that, that was probably quite good for the, for the royal family's reputation because it meant that they were, you know, if we'd had a president, an elected president who had strong political views, then the president would all... Oh, obviously been drawn into the Brexit debate and so on. The Queen stayed out and it did her a lot of good, I would imagine. And one of the biggest changes that's affected Britain and, of course, the world in recent years is COVID-19. 
Can you talk a bit about the pandemic? And obviously, as a historian, we're still very close to the pandemic. But with your historian's hat on, can you make some comments about how the pandemics changed the country? It's very hard to know, really, whether the the COVID will fade in our historical imagination or whether it will loom as, loom as large as it does now. My instinct, actually, is that it will fade. And one reason I say that was that the Queen was born into a world that was just recovering from Spanish flu. And um, basically, until COVID hit, nobody gave Spanish flu any thought at all. It's not really there in films of the 1920s or films made subsequently. It's not really there in the literature of the 20s that people think of, whether it be the sort of the lowbrow or middlebrow stuff of kind of Agatha Christie and whatnot and thrillers. It's not there in high modernist books, you know, Ulysses, Mrs. Dalloway and so on. Um, or if it's there, it's there really only as a shadow. Kind of people forgot about it pretty quickly. They wanted to forget about it. Now, COVID has definitely, the pandemic has definitely accelerated lots of trends that were already underway. So, for example, we're doing this podcast on Zoom. Um, you know, if you had shares in Zoom before, you know, the spring of 2020, you did very well because nobody really saw what a massive thing it was going to be. But obviously, video conferencing, working from home, those things were on the rise before COVID. COVID, you know, massively accelerated this trend. Um, and I think, you know, when we look back as historians, we might well say that COVID acted as a sort of huge catalyst, speeding things up, the rise of, you know, internet shopping, the death of the high streets, all those sort of things. Um, but will we be, you know, will COVID leave a mark on the rest of the 2020s? I actually wonder whether people would just be very keen to sort of put it put it behind them. The one other thing I'll say about COVID, by the way, um, COVID was also very good for the monarchist brand because, of course, when COVID hit and we went into the first lockdown in Britain, and every British listener to this will, will definitely remember this, you know, tens of millions of people watched the Queen's address to the nation harking back to the Second World War and saying, you know, we will get through this, we will meet again, this very sort of rousing emotional speech, which lots of people, you know, people who aren't necessarily monarchists, sort of said to me afterwards, oh, that was, you know, it's weird, isn't it? How it's only the Queen who can do this and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, that's a sort of nice nod back, I guess, to her her youth in the in the Second World War. And for my final question, and I do have to warn you, it's a big question. What do you think is the single biggest change that has affected Britain the most over the Queen's so lifetime? So I would probably say the... Probably the biggest change. I mean, certainly the what I've always said is the biggest change, and I might as well stick to my previously stated opinion, is probably the transformation in the, the lives of women. Um, you know, it is kind of weird, isn't it, to think the Queen was born into a world in which um, young women couldn't vote. So mm, I certainly wouldn't have been interviewing you yeah. when the Queen was born. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 1970, um, so, you know, what's that? Midway through the Queen's reign. Um, if you'd been working late in London and you'd wanted to go to a wimpy bar, the big sort of far British fast food restaurant of the day, to get yourself a burger, you would not have been, and you'd gone on your own, you wouldn't have been allowed in. They didn't allow uh, women on their own because they said a, a woman on her own at that hour must be, a, is obviously a prostitute. Um, you know, and the sort of, then you think about when Margaret Thatcher became prime minister and the sort of, um, how much of an anomaly she was and the sort of snobbery and prejudice and so on. And then you look at the sort of the the stats on how many women worked as lawyers, how many women were doctors, all these kinds of things. Um, how many women went to work, how many women stayed at home. 
I think that's probably the single biggest change. It's just a colossal transformation in what people think, you know, they can do. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. And so it's so appropriate that, you know, she was a, an effect. I mean, some people might contest this, but a, a working woman. That was Dominic Sandbrook. To find out more about the Queen's life, from her childhood to her relationship with her Prime Ministers, you can pick up a copy of The Queen Bookazine, brought to you by the makers of BBC History magazine. Just search for The Queen on buysubscriptions.com. This conversation was recorded in partnership with the Historical Association. To find out more about them and their annual Great Debate competition for students, head to history.org.uk slash the hyphen great hyphen debate. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.